Hello and welcome to Tailoring It podcast number 12. Regular readers of my blog and listeners to the podcast will know that I uh, I do enjoy getting out and about and I do enjoy going to conferences and workshops. Uh, and anybody who's been following me for a while will know that, that the catalyst really and the inspiration to take a much closer look at learning technologies came out as a result of me attending um, Learning Technologies 2010. I was very honoured to be asked back by Don Taylor to speak at um, Learning Technologies 2011, and it's always the problem with multi-track conferences. You can never be in two places at once, although people might argue with a back channel, actually you can be. Physically, you can't be in two places at once. And it was that lack of, um, of, of physical, or the ability to clone myself and put me in several places that led to me missing um, what I've now found with benefit of hindsight to be a very, very useful, interesting session on the afternoon of day two of Learning Technologies 2011. So I thought to myself, OK, I will go back. I'll review those videos that Don Taylor's put on the Learning and Skills Group site. And I've reviewed a particular video quite a number of times because it's of particular interest to me because I've taken this sort of approach that today's guest is advising. And also because I've been, um, you know, I've again once uh, honoured to speak at Learning and Skills Group uh, later on this month. So what I've done is I've invited Dr. Chris Atherton to come along this afternoon to have a chat on Skype and um, put this podcast together and just provide a little bit of an overview, really, about what she spoke about at Learning Technologies 2011 as a reminder to the people that were there and as a piece of really, really good advice for those people that weren't. So very good afternoon to you, Chris. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks so much for having me. You're more than welcome. Thanks ever so much for agreeing, especially on, on a very sunny Friday afternoon. Although, I must admit, when you did agree to this, we probably didn't know the weather was going to be as good. So... I thought it was going to rain. I forget <laughs> it. It's off. The whole thing's off. I want to go outside. Okay. Well, no, just... thanks for listening, folks, and we'll see you in podcast number 13. Um, Chris, just give us an overview. What is it that you do? What's your area of speciality? What is it that, um, what is, what credibility is it that, that, you know, allowed Don to sort of come along and ask you to speak in quite some detail on a specific subject back in January. Sure. Well, my background is as a psychologist. So I'm an experimental psychologist by training, uh, which means that I've got a PhD and so on. And, and really most of the last 10 years, what I spent doing uh, with that PhD and afterwards was really looking at how people process visual information and, and looking at which parts of the brain are involved in that process. And as I went through that process, as I sort of got more interested in how people process information, I then got interested in the role of attention. And partly this was because I was teaching. So at the time, and until very recently, I was actually a university lecturer at Central Lancashire in Preston. And uh, what I found was that it didn't matter how good you were in the lecture theatre or in the classroom, if you didn't have people's attention, obviously they wouldn't learn. If they weren't paying attention to the material, it wouldn't go in. So I started thinking a lot more about the cognitive processes underpinning attention and underpinning people's capacity to learn. And that in turn got me interested in a whole range of related things. So not just in the, the teaching context, but in a training context and e-learning context and so on. In fact, pretty much any setting in which people have to process information. So I got into researching that, particularly in the context of the classroom, but also chatting to people online about it. And I also broadened my uh, horizons to include things like technical communication and user experience. And I'm now, uh, as I said, until recently, I was a lecturer in psychology and I've now moved to Skype for a period of three months. And I'm actually being an intern there, which is a really interesting change of scene for me. I bet. And I work, uh, yeah, I'm working with their uh, experienced research team 
so for anyone who's maybe not coming from a sort of software industry background uh, or, or isn't familiar with that, the experienced research is really all about looking at how people interact with your product and how you can improve the product. So as you can imagine, I'm learning an awful lot from my colleagues at Skype about how to, um, how to assess whether people have understood the technology that they're interacting with. And that's where I am right now. That sounds like a great place to be and a great time as well. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And particularly, actually, given the Microsoft acquisition, it's yeah. a very interesting place to be at the moment. Yeah, I'll bet. bet. No word yet on how that's going to shake down. Lots going on, lots going on. So for people listening, they probably now understand why I took a particular interest in your session at Learning Technologies and why I think other people would benefit from this. Um, I'm going to be speaking in a couple of weeks' time about going beyond bullet points uh, and how you can still, I hope, get information across to people in an effective way and be engaging and be effectual and, and make a difference without relying on bullet points. And the more and more people I see online and interact with online, lots of people get it. Lots of people realise we need to get rid of the bullet points. But, what, but why? What's the reason for getting rid of the bullet points? What's the, the science? What's the theory behind getting rid of them? Well, at the moment, there is very little science. Um, my colleague Andy Morley and myself have done a bit of work on this. Um, my former colleague, I should say, at Central Lancashire. Uh, we've tried to really assess the extent to which putting information in bullet point style format might be detrimental to people's understanding. And as, as we have it at the moment, which is to say that we're in the very early days of really testing this, but what we have so far really suggests that if you put reams of text on a slide, and typically this would be in, in bullet points because this is how PowerPoint and other related software tend to format it by default. If you do that, people's we don't have evidence really to say exactly what people's attention is doing, but we do have evidence to suggest that people do less well at recalling the information later. So my hypothesis here would be that what's happening is people's attention is all over the slide. And at any given moment, you could be talking to a particular bullet point on the slide, but there's no guarantee that the person is actually looking at that. They might be listening to you or not. You don't really control people's attention. And so uh, what we found so far kind of suggests that if you can get away from this wordy bullet point style where there's a lot of things for people to focus on on the one slide and maybe trim it down a little bit, so that there's less on the slide and so you have more chance of, uh, if you like, the person's attention coinciding with what you're actually getting at, then uh, that should improve their, uh, at least their recall of the information afterwards, though hopefully their understanding as well. I think you, you made a really good point and quite a humorous point of proving that because when you watch back the video that I'll provide in the show notes, I was quite surprised. Then I, I grinned to myself because I realised what you were doing. Your very first slide or one of your first slides was just a screen full of bullet points that you started talking about. And as you can listen to the audience's reaction, you hear a few people sniggering and laughing and talking because the last couple of points actually is taking the mickey out of the fact that you've got a screen full of bullet points and the fact that actually you're still on bullet point two or three and everybody else has progressed to the end. So their concentration, is their, their focus of attention is, is gone from what you were talking about to what they're reading about. So I thought that was quite a, quite a funny and humorous way of making your point right at the beginning. Right. I, I was glad that a few people fell into my trap. I worried, actually, that everyone would just, you know, walk through it with me faithfully and patiently, because, of course, it's a very motivated audience that you get at this conference. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily typical of your, your standard audience for a PowerPoint presentation. Yeah, perhaps not. Yeah. So, OK, so we are getting we're moving away from moving bullet points. We understand the reasoning and the, the logic behind 
moving away from them. But for many people, you remove the bullet points from the screen and what you've got left is either a clean white background or a funky PowerPointy formatted background. What needs to go on there to, to again replace that those bullet points but still allow it to remain in context? Well, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I guess the short and slightly cheeky answer is it depends. Um, the What I think is most important and, and what I, I suspect I will end up saying again and again while we're chatting today is that it's really all about attention. It's about the audience's attention. If you don't have that, you don't have them. So whatever you need to catch the audience's attention in that moment to talk about whatever it is you need to talk about, that's what needs to be on the slide. And it might be that a blank slide is exactly what you need right then. Okay. Although actually what I've, what I've found sometimes is that um, uh, if you've just got a blank white slide with nothing on it, people will keep looking there. There's this expectation because you've got the shiny screen, particularly given the, the good projection facilities that most places have now, is that even though the, the screen is blank, people will just keep returning to it and returning to it in the way that you would in a, a pub perhaps or something yeah. where there's a TV on and the sound isn't playing, but you keep looking at it because your visual attention is, is guiding you there. And... Um, one, one sort of basic tip, actually, I would say is that in PowerPoint, obviously, you can actually get rid of whatever is on your slide right there. And you can make a plain white slide uh, by pressing the W key and that just toggles on and off. And then a plain black slide by pressing the black key. And if you don't want people's attention to be on the slide at all, then for goodness sake, press the black key. Yeah. Uh, because otherwise they will steep, kill. Uh, sorry, excuse me. They will still keep returning to the slide in the hope that I guess something will appear there in a moment. Um but it's a good question. If you don't put bullet points on there, what, what else might you put on? So you might have a picture, for example. And the, there's very little research on this, but I find this fascinating. There's obviously there's a big difference between the kinds of image that you could put up there. Because you could put a photograph or you could put some kind of graphic or you could put a logo or something like that. Um, the interesting thing about photographs is that they're very evocative and that can really help you, obviously, because that can take the audience with you emotionally and, and retains their attention in that way. But on the other hand, what about the specifics of, of a photograph? Sometimes a photograph can be so specific that people will go off on their own little tangents yes. about what it means to them yep. rather than the point that you were trying to make. So again, it's, I suppose it's really just about considering what will the audience take from this, presuming they know nothing about what I'm saying or nothing about what the, the image is trying to convey. Yes, yeah, yeah. I read a, a blog post recently um, on people who were talking about using tenuous images in, um, in rapid e-learning development. And the mm -hmm. fact that whilst you as the instructional designer might think that that image is, is a clever play on words and it's, and it's a subliminal meaning about what the content's actually trying to put across, Actually, there's a very good chance it is only the instructional designer that gets it and that everybody else is left wondering why on earth, what on earth does that image actually have to do with this content? And therefore, whilst they're thinking that, they're not concentrating, the impact is, like, is likely to be less, their understanding is, you know, potentially can be greatly reduced. So if you're going to use an image, think, think very, very carefully about whether there's any, any way that this image can be misinterpreted and cause confusion. Right, Absolutely. I got to thinking about this recently and from having come away from um, from bullet points and from lots of words on the slide and thinking, oh, we'll put pictures and picture paints a thousand words. I've kind of almost circled back on myself now to the point where often I will just put a word up because 
actually the word is the, almost the definitive logo, if you like. I mean, if you go back to, is it Greece? Um, if it, is it Greek that logo comes from? Is it logos that means word? I, I'm not sure about that. You can edit this out. Um, no, no, you, what, what I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll research it on, uh, on the good old Wikipedia and actually put in a bit of a uh, bit of research for people there. Excellent. Um, <laughs> if you go back to that, though, you think about that, that really what a word is. A word is the definitive icon because if you put the word learning up, you can put any number of images up that might try and convey learning, but they might mean very different things to your audience. Whereas actually, if you put up the word learning, everyone knows what learning is. Yes. So in a way, that's almost the iconic way of, of um, showing what you want to talk about and, and setting that visual context or setting that semantic context anyway. That underpin- uh, I'm pleased you've mentioned that because as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I'm speaking at Learning, Techno- uh, Learning and Skills Group in a couple of weeks' time. And I've been doing some research on different presentation styles even just using the same underpinning slideware but how you can use the slideware differently and there's one particular style that I've looked at here which is known as the Takahashi method um, and it's, um, it's a, a Japanese programmer fairly recently uh, was quite nervous about speaking um, and wasn't that confident in what he was, what he's actually going to do and what he's actually done is he's he's used the entire screen and has put up the word as big as he possibly can on the screen. And his theory behind doing that was because he wants his word to be as big as possible, he's had to choose the shortest, simplest, most easily understood, least ambiguous word he possibly can. So rather than write the word massive on the screen or humongous, he'd write the word big and you know have a 300 size font on the screen. Um, so he's, he's just using single, simple words to underpin what he's saying, to act as a prompt, to act as, as you said, the, the ultimate original logo to underpin what he's actually talking about. Yeah, that that's really powerful, I think. I I don't know how that would, if you were talking for an hour, I don't know whether that would work <laughs> or not, but it's so, you know, it's so immediate. And as you say, it's so unambiguous. Actually, it's interesting that you raised the point about um, about using it as a prompt for yourself, because I think one of the things that gets people in such a, a sticky position with bullet points and with, with PowerPoint and, and slideware generally is, of course, that they want to know, they want a reminder of what's going to happen next. And uh, I think to some extent, I mean, uh, there are other people who talk about this better than me. So uh, Nancy Duarte, for example, um, uh, talk about things like narrative and so on and constructing a narrative around your text. But uh, I think it might be Seth Godin, I can't remember, who talks about the slidement, this yes. idea that people are going to look at the, uh, the the slides later. So actually what you're expected to provide is this whole text-based document that really is not for presentation at all because it's not really appropriate for that, but it's it's what people expect to be circulated later on. Yeah, I, I've, I've had two phrases used, slidementation and docking mm. slides, both of which I think are, are, are great phrases. And, and I've read some sort of follow-ups on people's perspectives on that. Um, and the fact that if, you know, if what you're presenting needs to be um, read into at a later date, if you want people to go away and, and look at the fine detail of it and look at the, the technical data that you've put together or the technical definitions or the by charts or the pie charts or anything else is give that to them in the way that they can consume most easily, which is usually in a text paper-based or electronic document. What your presentation should be is sufficient, sufficiently inspiring enough to make them to want to go and read the document. 
to right. actually inspire them to go and do it. So, you know, the subject is obviously the same, but the actual the, the content is within the document. Your presentation is the inspiration to go and read the document. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's easy to get. I think our language sometimes reveals how we feel about this or how we interact with our slides and our documentation in this way. So, for example, my students often used to say, can you know, are there any notes from your, your talk? And it, over time, they started saying, can I get your can I get your talk or can I get your lecture? And actually what they meant was, can I have the slides to the lecture? But that's a completely different thing. And I think uh, in higher education, but in, in training and, and development and so on generally, I think conflating the slides with the talk or the presentation that you give is, is a real mistake because otherwise, what value are you adding? Yes. You know, if I can send you the slides and, and you don't have to be in the room, then why would you ever be in the room at all? Because you can read through the slides much, much faster than, than I can present them. So I guess it's really about the recognizing, as you say, that there's a sort of a, a synergy, if you like, and, and a creative thing going on in the in the room when you give the presentation in a way that cannot possibly be put on on screen or on paper in pixels. It's, I mean, it's interesting to, to, to sort of consider if we've got people, people are in the room and we're using really good modern best practice, good visuals, good single words, blank screens. For the people that aren't in the room, the people that were unable to make it or were double booked or perhaps the people that were on another conference track session that conflicted with yours, just putting the slides together, just giving them the visual images is pretty much like sending them a link to iStock, really. It, you know, it's just what does it all mean? So what are your thoughts on sort of using video cameras, possibly recording the audio as you speak, which is a fairly low tech solution that I use, and then linking the audio to the slides in something like SlideShare. So actually, the audience still have got the benefit of it being a very polished, professional, best thinking, best practice presentation because your narrative backs it up. But so of the people that are unable to physically be there as well. I think if any of those options are available to you, then uh, yeah, I'd say use them. I think it's much kinder to people than shipping them off this this deck of, of slides <laughs> that might mean pretty much anything. Or uh, for example, sometimes that's not a, an option available to people. You know, sometimes that would just be returned straight away by your manager saying, you know, I can't read this, I can't make sense of this. Write me a document. Yeah. But yeah, using anything you can, using recording, whether that's video or audio or, or whatever, is great. The, the option that I often use on the SlideShare is that I just annotate my slides. So I, I, I take the slides that I used in the presentation and I put a bar down the bottom and I put a couple of lines of text just to explain what the context is here and what's what's going on. Yeah. It's not, you know, pure 100% verbatim what I said, but it's it gets the gist across. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully it provides, you know, that that missing element that somebody you know would wasn't able to pick up purely from a visual or a single word alone right and actually uh, i think there's value in in doing it this way and in, in not giving everything on your slides so for example uh, when i was a lecturer my students apparently I, I heard this from from other colleagues my students would say that they felt they had to come to my lectures because uh, there wasn't enough on the slides to just download them later and 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 you know yeah. do their on that basis so they kind of felt that they had to come so they understood the context and what was actually going on yeah that's a, a double-edged uh, you know double-edged advantage there isn't there yes <laughs> get the bums on seats absolutely we've been talking a little bit about you know some uh, some some cognitive psychology and learning design 
are there any resources any websites any books that you, you know that you perhaps are accessible to the, the typical listener of this podcast that you direct people to to find out a little bit more oh gosh that's a really hard question i mean i'm a big i'm a big advocate of just hanging out on Twitter and seeing what's going on. So obviously there's things like Learn Chat that happen on Twitter on a Thursday. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, really interesting for just picking up little snippets and links to things. And I actually think that that, that in itself is just a goldmine of information. Uh, in terms of books, there are some really terrific books out there about what to, um, you know, about how to approach designing things like like PowerPoints and, and slide documents. So uh, I mentioned Nancy Duarte before. Obviously, she's got a, a couple of books out, uh, Resonate and um, the older one, Slideology, yeah. which are really all about how to present and how to show information. And, you know, they have a track record of providing really excellent uh, graphical slide design. Um, obviously, you've got, um, oh, I'm sorry, his name escapes me right now, the gentleman who lives in Japan. And it skipped me as well. <laughs> How funny. I thought you were going to say uh, Cl Cliff Atkinson's Beyond Bullet Points. Uh, no, actually. Um, although, uh, yeah, um, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't read, don't tell him, I haven't read that. Uh, Gar Reynolds was the uh, the guy who lives in Japan. Okay. Um, Presentation Zen, which I think is a really excellent way. It's, it's a philosophical approach almost to slide design and to presentation but you know what? Uh, That's where I took a lot of my research uh, about the Takahashi and Lessig method is from mm, the Presentation yeah. Zen website. Yeah, he talks about those quite a lot. The uh, the Lessig method, um, which I'm not sure if you've mentioned, but which we've talked about before, yeah. is, yeah. Uh, again, I think this is a lovely example um, of using things like a refrain to... Uh, to repeat things because of course we used to be constrained uh, when you used to deliver a, a presentation of any kind you used to be constrained by physical resources so it was your overhead slides your transparencies or your actual proper slide slides that went in the projector and it was expensive to produce these and it was time consuming and they took up physical space and of course now it's all digital now if you want you know a thousand slides in your deck there's really nothing to stop you from doing that if you have the time to put that together so uh, I like the uh, the Lessig approach because it's it's a lot of slide reuse it's a lot of repetition and we know from you know from studying learning we know that repetition yeah. is a great great way of getting your uh, your message across because the more times you repeat it the more familiar it will be and people will go away and remember that the um the other resource that i want to pinpoint a link to actually is a, a book called killer presentations which you may or may not have come across I by a guy called nick olton uh, now i should full disclosure nick's actually a friend uh, but what i love about his book um killer presentations is that he understands the science. So he's really, really well-versed in the science underpinning giving a presentation and what happens to people's attention, what ha needs to happen with people's memory in order for that information to, to really go in and so on. And uh, ever since I met him, I've just been blown away by how much of the psychology and the science he understands about that. So that's very well recommended if people want to follow up on the, uh, the science of of giving a presentation. Do you know what? Because I'm going to put those, um, I'm going to get some links together for these and put them in the show notes afterwards so people can either go away and, and have a muse around themselves or possibly, you know, go, go and purchase the books or look at the resources online and, uh, sure. and delve a little deeper into uh, the fantastic 20, 25 minutes that we, we've just had a conversation around. I certainly know that I'm really pleased that I've had this conversation with you before I speak in a couple of weeks' time because mm. um, maybe I just need to, maybe I'm just going to go away and make a few more tweaks here and there. <laughs> Just one final thing, um, for those people that are listening that are, were already inspired to do something 
different with their presentations or for those people who actually as a result of listening to you speak over the last few minutes have thought right that's it time to start time to turn over a fresh sheet fresh leaf now our next presentation i am going to get rid of the bullet points and i am going to do something different i am going to try and live the dream that chris and craig have just been talking about what three simple pieces of advice or reminders or hints or tips would you give to that presenter who's just about to take that brave new step hmm. at the risk of channeling tony blair um attention 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 so okay <laughs> um, if you don't have your audience's attention then there is no point so it's it's really for me it is all about harnessing that and focusing that and remember that attention is is poor uh, when it's split so switching between tasks is cognitively expensive and what i mean by tasks is listening to you and looking at your slides that's a cognitively expensive thing to do to be ping-ponging between those two things so if you can restrict your audience to only paying attention to one thing at one time or a couple things at one time then that's that's perfect really that's what you want because then you will have them and sometimes that can be a really frightening prospect so for example uh having 400 people in a lecture theater looking at you and having you know having their undivided attention that's in a way that's just terrifying but it means that you have them and it means that you can really then engage with them not just in terms of putting across information, but emotionally engage with them. If they're not attending to you, then they won't emotionally engage. And to some extent, that's going to affect how they take away whatever it is that you say today. Of course it so, is, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so really, uh, attention, 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 that's it. You asked me before about rules as well for presenting, and I actually hate rules. I wrote a blog post about this a while ago, um, about why I hate the rules, uh, anyone's rules of attention, uh, sorry, anyone's rules of, of uh, presenting at all. So, you know, you must have one slide per uh, two minutes of your talk, or you must only have 10 slides, or whatever, whatever. And really, the point of that post that I wrote was to say the only rule that matters is the rule of attention, because that's, that's the only thing that makes the difference about whether or not you can really engage with your audience so the two back one another then attention 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 does away with the need to, to stick to these perhaps you know antiquated rules attention 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 i wouldn't say that they're all necessarily antiquated i mean even the bullet list can be useful as for example a mnemonic you know if you want yes. a, a list of things to remember show all of those at once you know that's a meaningful list but i guess the point is that for any rule that you can think of, I can think of, a, a, you know, I could probably think of an occasion on which that is just inappropriate. Yes, yeah, of course. So it's just about questioning those rules, really, and thinking, is this appropriate for me, for this audience right now? Chris, you mentioned a few minutes ago that you wrote a blog post about this. So obviously you've got an online presence. I know you're on Twitter. Do you want to let uh, listeners know whereabouts they can find you online? Absolutely, yeah. So I'm on Twitter. I'm twitter.com slash finiteattention. Uh, and my blog, uh, which is indirectly linked from that as well, is uh, finiteattentionspan.wordpress.com. And uh, do drop by and, and please engage with me. I, I love chatting to people in the comments. I'll certainly make sure that they go in the show notes. Chris, thanks ever so much once again on this sunny Friday afternoon for sparing the time to, uh, to have a chat with me. I, I personally really appreciate it. It's come at a really good time for me. And I have no doubt at all that certainly for the people that, that sort of tune in to the podcast and have a listen that there's definitely something in there for them because i can't know the people that listen to this so chris on behalf of them thanks ever so much for your time this afternoon thanks very much craig thanks for having me i appreciate it more than welcome thanks